Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Welcome back to The Big Interview. It's a delight to have you. Hi, it's Graham. My guest today is Stuart Baxter, one of my favourite storytellers in football. I first got to know him after his team AIK Solna in Stockholm won the Swedish Championship and the antics of their hardline ultra Black Army fans got so out of hand, including one of them arriving in Stuart's office with a gun to demand better results. That when I interviewed him and wrote it up in the newspaper I was working for at the time, it kind of went a bit viral in, in the pre-viral days to the extent that I ended up talking about it on BBC Radio 5 uh, mid-morning with Nicky Campbell because people just couldn't believe that ARK Solness fans were as mental as indeed they were. Stuart was a guy to stay in touch with and indeed by 2003 when the South African FA were looking for a coach to replace uh, John Mosono. Um They phoned Benny McCarthy's agent, Rob Moore. Rob phoned me. And I put forward the names of Gianluca Vialli, Walter Smith, Stuart Baxter, people I could vouch for and who I thought would do a good job. They went for Baxter partly because he was able to quote as references three people who, who stood out in football, Arsene Wenger, Sir Bobby Robson and Sven Joran Eriksson. So those were three uh, friends and contacts of Stuart who spoke up for him and he became South African manager. Stuart's also the guy responsible for the cracking story about um, when at Vissel Kobe, uh, he and his family decided to stay on after the devastating earthquake there ripped the city apart. 
the owner of Vissel Kobe was so grateful for this, and boy, that owner features in this interview, and it's fascinating, that he said, yeah, you can you can sign anybody you want. Stuart said, look out, it'll be Michael Loudrop. Anyway, the long and short is, when uh, Loudrop was about to leave to go to join Stuart in Japan, the King of Spain approached him in a restaurant in Spain's capital. And look, the story gets told in this interview. It, it's an interview whereby the colour, the intensity, the eccentricities, idiosyncrasies of football just scream out. And, and we think also that if some of you don't know Stuart's name, we still think this show works best when we speak not only to current stars like Virgil van Dijk and Emiliano Martinez or bona fide long-term legends like Luca Vialli or Chris Waddle, but it also works best when some of football's great storytellers, they're pioneers, and this is a man who's travelled to work in as I said, Sweden, South Africa, Portugal, Finland. Stuart belongs in both of these categories. To me, he's also a legend. Look, um, he's won championships. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the game over a a career that spanned four decades. Born in Wolverhampton, his accent might sound English to you, Midlands, but he's a Scot, I promise you. So, listen in. You're going to enjoy this. Here's part one of my chat with Stuart Baxter. I hope you've brought your passport with you. We're going all around the world. Sometimes in the long and, in my own words, distinguished history of the big interview, something that started out as a wee jolly jape, but it's become, some might say, Pulitzer Prize worthy. Sometimes there's an interview which is just pure pleasure. And it's this one. We are with, we are in the presence of the mighty Stuart Baxter, a man who has influenced football all across the globe, been highly successful, but a man with whom, for one reason or another, my career is inextricably intertwined. Stuart, that's not the kind of fancy language I normally use when we are chatting, so I'll just get down to brass tacks and say... Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining the big interview. We're, we're, for those who are only listening in audio, there are some pretty damn impressive pennants and jerseys around you in your office. Where are you and, and what am I looking at? I'm in Sweden, Graham. Nice to be here. Much more nicer to be talking to you. I've got, <laughs> I've got my very first South African shirt behind me there. I've got Cristiano Ronaldo's shirt when we played Portugal and he scored a penalty with Finland, and he beat us 1-0. And my first England shirt is down there. I think that's Nicky Butts' shirt that we played against Australia. So that's what's around me in here. It's pretty damn impressive compared to the bare walls you can see behind me. But, Stuart, before I start asking you questions, let's play true-false. Mr Stuart Baxter, at some stage, at least once in your professional career... Have you been menaced with a loaded gun? True. Stuart Baxter, at some stage in your professional life, has your house and sadly your family come very close to being enveloped by an earthquake? True or false? True. Stuart, was the experience of being in a dressing room with Jim McLean scarier than either of those? True or false? True. (laughs) Stuart... Are you one of the best-travelled British managers in the history of the modern game? True or false? Some, some would say most travelled. Some would say journeyman. 
No, no, this is a, we, you're at who hurts you, Stuart? You're in a safe space here. Most travelled because highly desired and highly successful. Stuart, let, let's go to Jim McLean, because sadly there'll be some people listening to this who've forgotten that he was probably, including Arsene Wenger, the only manager that has ever really gone nose-to-nose, toes-to-toe with Sir Alex Ferguson when the two of them were forming the, the new firm, Dundee United and Aberdeen, and if not utterly succeeded, one, got right under Fergie's skin, two, not backed off one inch, three, he took Dundee United to a couple of European finals, uh, well, one European final and a European Cup semi-final where they were roundly cheated by the then uh, people in charge at AS Roma. Explain your experiences of, I don't think he was christened Wee Jim, but he should have been christened Wee Fiery Jim McLean. I was at Preston. We played Dundee United in a, a pre-season friendly. Andy Ray was playing his last game for Dundee United before he went to Aston Villa. So I was marking, I was marking Andy Gray. Uh, I had a decent game, difficult to play against Andy at that time. Uh, brave as a lion and and uh, made his presence felt. So I thought I did quite well. Uh, I did that well that Jim loaned me uh, from uh, from Preston. The loan became uh, the loan became a transfer, a, a very short one. And uh, my experience of him was at that time quite positive. You know, it was quite. I thought oh, I like this fella. This is he's a competitor. He's a winner and. But that sort of winning instinct when we played our first game at Ibrox against Rangers and he stormed in throwing cups around and ripped the door off its hinges and, and, uh, and threatened everybody, everybody including the kit man in the dressing room. That was uh, a little bit of a, an awakening for me. But, uh, and it didn't get any better. It just got, it just got worse. So it was, uh, but as soon as we were away from the, away from the match... He was absolute uh, tough on the on the training field. Had you seen ferocity like that in football before? No, never, never. Maybe I'll had a sheltered life, Graham. I don't know. I'd seen glimpses of that, you know. But Jim was ferocious. Big lads like Davy Nairy, they 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 cringed when he when he went off on one. What interests me is that because you've coached in so many countries, most of which we'll we'll come to, but they would include. Um, Portugal and Japan and Finland and South Africa and England. It, it goes on and on and on. I imagine you've had to change your um, your psychology or, or be adaptable in your psychology, adaptable in your man management skills. Do you think there will ever be a place for, you know, the, the, the most ferocious type of Jim McLean, Alex Ferguson experience. Alex Ferguson was was widely misunderstood because the 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 the, the easy pigeonholing of Furious Fergie lasted longer than Fergie because he changed. But do you think do you think that's gone forever in football? Let's be let's let's backtrack first and find out well where did that come from? Well the first coaching came from the military, didn't it? The, the, listen son, do as I tell you or people will get killed. And that was and that was wake wake yourself up, son. And it was and that was where it came from. And then we we drifting through now to a sort of guided discovery. I ask you open questions and hope that you suddenly dis- discover what I want you to do. You know the two the two ends of the scale. You know I think the modern coach 
has got to be able to do all of those things. And he's got to know when to do it. Now, if you get it wrong, then, then you're probably not a very good coach. But at the right time, if, you want to, if you're going to liven people up, if they've come in and they've not put it in, and the, and the players have not given what you think they should be giving, then why is it not in its place to go back to that military, st- military style, get back online, lads, and do, and do as I'm telling you, you know? Let's get back to our best. Why is that not in place? Now, I'm not saying that being an instructor sometimes, being an inspirer sometimes, being a father figure sometimes, put your arm around players. is. I think that is the modern coach. And, and society has changed since back then. And, uh, and, and kids have changed. Football players have changed. Their priorities are different. And we, we just need to know which hat to put on. But does it have a place? Probably still. Do you think, because you've touched on something that I I hold dear, and the more I travelled, the more I felt it to be true, that one of the things that made um, British football so successful um, before you or I were born, but during our lives, because we're sort of similar in age group, was the fact that when there wasn't mass communication and when there wasn't mass sharing of information, that military style of coaching, particularly when... You know, there were many times when an international coach in Britain wasn't allowed to pick. It was the the the, the team was picked by committee. Um, but well into my working career as a journalist, British footballers were largely expected to do as they were told on the pitch. And if you were all together, you were unified, and it was an eleven man effort, and the coach was clever, it functioned. But as you looked around, particularly as I began to travel, you saw devolved intelligence where players on the pitch could actually take a grasp of a 20-minute period or a 30-minute period or could rip up the tactics if they weren't working instead of waiting until half-time. And, and, and that began to divide the two spheres of football during our working careers. 100% correct. And even though I'd been abroad and I'd worked a lot abroad, the very first time I saw the big difference was when I visited Arsenal, to, I visited Arsene and he was working... And when I watched him working, I realised that the Arsenal players must be experiencing such a vast difference between... Not, I'm not talking about quality. I'm not talking about Arsene counter George Graham, who, who was the best. I'm saying there must have been such a huge difference in the delivery of information. And, and that's, what you, that's what you're getting at there, that, that it, could be a, it could be a well-organised... Do as I tell you, son. Very left brain, very logical thinking. Struggling to be a bit creative, aren't we? Yeah, well, that's not strange, is it? You know. So that one, and then you've got the the Arsene sort of guiding people and being tough at the right time, talking transition suddenly. You know, instead of sitting back and being a counter-attacking team, we'll get after people. We'll provoke a transition, then we'll explode away. You know. These these must be two vastly different things. That, but as you quite rightly say, it was it was a it was a journey that that is probably still going on today. It's probably still not finished yet. I think we're at the extreme edge of it, and we're going to come back to that because I know that although you hold views that um, are different from the vogueish ideas at the moment, yours are effective, and you're a good thinker, and that. You, you don't reject what's happening. You, you analyse it and you ask people to look closely. But I, I want to 
I want to move back a little bit to the first time we talked, and I was an inquisitive um, young reporter on a desk in Scotland, and I can't remember why I decided to investigate Scots who were abroad. Now, I'm calling you a Scot. You might have been born on the wrong side of the border, but you're ours. I claimed you long, long ago. I remember celebrating the fact that a Scot had won a foreign league because you won... The title in Sweden, and this wasn't your first coaching experience by a long, long way, but you, you, you were a title winner in a major European country at a time when, for example, not long different from when Gothenburg were ripping things up and beating Manchester United in the Champions League. And if you asked literally everybody in Britain, what was the name of Stuart Baxter's title winning side in Sweden? I think maybe about six people would be able to name them. Do you know what I mean? So so tell us about Solna, and then I'm going to ask you specifically about what it was, the incident at Solna, that got me, once I interviewed you, splashed all over BBC Radio 5. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, I was, the story really starts in Japan, because I just won the championship in Japan, and Arsene Wenger had come to Nagoya. So Arsene was at Grampus, I was then, I then moved from San Fretti where I won the championship to Kobe and we were there one, one year simultaneously. So Arsene then moved to Arsenal and I, at the end of my stint there, moved to AIK in Stockholm. So Arsene did the double at Arsenal, I did the double in Sweden and we got drawn against each other in the Champions League. So that's where that one ties in. Arsene, Arsene had gone there, I'd gone to, to Sweden and... I went to a club that was a big club, passionate supporters, and yet had done nothing for 10 years. I had to walk into the club and really own the place because there were big personalities in the dressing room. Very similar to Arsenal. Arsenal walked in with Tony Adams and, and Bold and Keown and people like that, big personalities. So I walked in. Yoan Mielby was one of, the, one of them that the Scots fans would know. Uh, so we walked in and it, it had to be, this is the way we're going to play. And you'd be talking about the military. This was very much Stuart Baxter's idea. And guys, I don't want a discussion about this. This is what we're going to do because this will win us the league. So we started. We started quite poorly. And I'm sure you're going to ask me about that little period a bit later. And then suddenly we went on around 13 games where we didn't concede a goal. And that was in the middle of a Champions, a Champions League episode as well. So... So we went in and we ended up winning, we, we won the championship. Of course, I became quite popular. We stayed another two years because it was just like the most electrifying time of my career, probably, because you were playing so close to the edge all the time. We were, I remember we were leading the, leading the, the league my second year. We got booed off the field at half time at, at nil nil because we weren't playing well enough. So it was edgier seat stuff. T tell people, what is Solna? Let's leave AIK aside again. Describe Solna. Describe life in Solna, not just as a football man, you know, because if people are listening to this on their way into work at Worksop or, or, or commuting to Arbroath or Dungannon, and they're like, I wouldn't mind a couple of years in Stockholm. So describe, t tell people what Solna is, where it is, what it's like. The Solna, it's basically, it's basically a little suburb of, uh, of Stockholm. Stockholm is a magnificently elegant city. Solna is a very ordinary place. Solna is straight up and down. You know, it's just 
rows of flats and and the national stadium was in Solna, so which is where we played our games, and IAK Solna was and the people used to go mental if you said IAK Stockholm. Uh, it was it was a it was a very old traditional Swedish club, and so they were very proud people, very passionate. Playing playing for IAK is like I don't want to say it's special. But when we played Fiorentina in the Champions League, we had an Australian player. And there was an Australian player playing for Fiorentina. And he came up to him before the game. He said, he says, what's it like playing for these? He says, he said, he says, because all our lads are talking about it. So that's what it was like. The Fiorentina players knew that coming to play in Solna was like going to the Sami Aliena or one of these sort of places in Istanbul. The Black Army is the the IIK Solna uh, Ultras, if you want to call them that. I don't like calling them that. They don't like being called that. They're, they're the Black Army. They're, they're on one, one specific, the, the north side of the, of, the, uh, of the stadium. And they were the ones that booed us off at half-time, basically. After each game, the, the, the players would go and stand there in front of them and either take their wrath or they would be doing the, the wave with them and, and people would be jumping out of the crowd and they would be, yeah, exactly, we'd be thanking them. Uh, I've played a game, I've played a game against Barty Borisov in the Champions League where we opened the first five, ten minutes quite slowly, which they didn't like. Uh, we were leading 2-0, we, we beat them away, so I don't know if it was like, how do we approach this game really? They then went on a, a sort of a chant that was like, basically it was, come on, Aiko, come on, Aiko, come on, for 30 minutes, non-stop. They stopped just before half-time. I'm not joking, it was, it was the bench. We kept looking at the, at, the, at the supporters. It was like, I can't believe this. And the players went from being a bit slow to absolutely flying at people. We were 1-0 up at half-time when we ended up beating them 2-0 again. So they, they could literally lift the team up. And they can now. They are, they are, they're the same now. Generations, the generations just keep coming and it's, it's amazing. I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview, and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show, and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten, and David Goldblatt. Now, a friend of mine, Lawrence Donegan, on his classic golf book, Four Iron in the Soul. You know, you just write a book, and it's just some sort of alchemy that you, you don't understand what's happening. That's a good word. And lo and behold, at the end of it, it's like something's... It comes together and something's happened that you're not even aware it was happening at the time. I think Nick Hornby talked about this about fever pitch. You just wrote a book, not that fever uh, got, that's anywhere near as good as fever pitch, but you know, there's just some sort of alchemy, mysterious thing that happens in the process of writing a book, and the book is greater than for some reason it's actually better and bigger and more appealing than you actually 
intended. And lo and behold, as you say, 20 years later, we're still talking about it. People will still talk about it. People absolutely love it in a way. And those kind of books that hit, just hit some kind of chord that you, you know, some kind of bullseye that you weren't aiming for, but somehow it hit that bullseye and, and, and that's why, that's why they last. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, so I know that psychology and philosophy enters has entered a lot into your managerial uh, career, and we'll come to why. When you first explained the Black Army to me, I thought that it was a bit—it was such an odd piece of human interaction because you came to them and delivered them success after a barren time, and you and they were nose to nose, toe to toe a lot of the time. You wouldn't call it total harmony, uh, and how can it? be that you bring them success you're on the edge all the time and yet it's a bit cat and dog the whole time you're there the, i mean the, the beginning was the worst the beginning was the worst i came i came from japan we had a fantastic pre-season i think we beat we beat we won a tournament down in marbella where we beat i think it was the, the top norwegian teams the, the fc copenhagen and brunby and the top danish teams and and they were really thinking this is our year, you know. And then we opened like nil nil one one nil one, and and it after about six games, I remember, I remember we played a game at home, drew, and uh, the police came to me after the game, said that Stuart, there's some some of the the lads want to speak to you. I said what? I said no, just I think you better come out and just speak to them. I went out, and there's, there was four lads. And one was very well dressed, and another one was got a big leather jacket on. And I says, "Yeah." And the, the one jumped in my face, and he's going, "This is not good enough for us." We're and then another one just put his arm across his chest and said, "Hey, hey, hey calm down." He says, "Listen, Stuart." And I said, and then I jumped in, didn't I? Like big mouth. I went, "Hey, if you want to go down in the dressing room, you'll see other people that are, that are sick. You'll see other people that care. So don't come to me and give." And of course, then this lad went, yeah, 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 okay, Stuart, have a beer with us. They'd fronted me, basically, to test me out, you know, has this guy got any ball? So they just walked away. The policeman said, as we were walking down the stairs, be careful, Stuart. He says, uh, that, the, the one with the leather jacket, he smashed someone's kneecap with a baseball bat because he owed him 200 crowns, which is about 20 quid. Okay. 
And, uh, you know, the, the amount of times I said me and my big mouth that, that evening was incredible, you know. So that was my beginning with them. Then we went on this run. And in the middle of all this, my, my wife's mother, God bless her, she, she had cancer. And so I had, to, I had to take one week away from it in the summer where I went down. I stayed with my, my wife and her mother when she was passing away. And uh, I went back. And there was a ma- when I went back, there was a massive flat banderole spread across We Are Baxter's Bodyguards. They were incredible. They, I mean, I loved them. I loved them. And from there, and he was, he was like this, resign your bastard. If we, if we lost one nil, it was resign. <laughs> Get them. You know, and it was, uh, it was, it was pretty hectic. I mean, one, in the bad, the bad times, one of them, I think one of them placed a, a letter bomb in the offices of the club. And the police came and we had to get out of the... Th- I mean, that was the bad day. They are not like that now, I have to add. They are not like... They are, I believe they're the best for supporters I've ever, I've, ever, I've ever seen. But they have you on the edge all the time. I suppose that for... I mean, you, whether you consider yourself Scottish or English, one of the things that unites you and I is a certain degree of ferocity and a... And a not just big mouth, but a, a certain you stick your chest out and you go head first into life. I, I suppose those sort of things they don't make you do more work or better work. But it, it, when you are um, exposed to to the outside edges of human passion, it impacts on you, and I think you notice it. It's not just a nine to five job for you. I, I, I believe listening to you over the years, that sort of thing you don't want your family to be under threat. You don't want letter bombs, but You've got a capacity to go, I, I understand what these people are like and what they want, and I'll do it my way, but I don't mind a little bit of storm and drying going on around me. If you talk about enlightenment, you talk about a journey where you find out about yourself. So if, if, I, if, if I'm more enlightened now than I was when I started my football journey, it's not surprising, because I've found out about myself. In certain situations, you've got to keep it together. And in certain situations, it's like, you see, you don't do a better job, but you make sure you do a good job. Whereas if you're not as adjusted as, as, you, as I was, then maybe you bottle it and maybe you do a crap job and you get the sack. Well, I didn't. You know, I mean, I didn't. I went on and I won the championship. I could have very easily panicked, not, not stood up for myself, not stood up for the team, you know, the, I remember the, the game we played against Gothenburg when we went on this run. It was away. We had a man sent off and we had 10 men. And we battled and battled and then we scored a, a set play with five minutes to go. And I remember what I said to the players before the game, you know. And they, and they all looked at me. It was that look where it's, don't worry about us, mate, you know. And I said to them, I says, now, look, I says, you know what's going on? You know the stuff that's been happening? Now, we've got two choices. I said, we either, we either bottle it and you change or it's no compromise and we win things our way. Now, it's no compromise or it's compromise. What are we going to do? No compromise, Gaffer. We went out, they ran their legs off and it was 1-0. And we went on a run then of, of a run that won the championship. So it was, I remember the day. I can remember, I can remember the moment as, as clear as... As clear as it was yesterday. These, a lot of these things, in my opinion, particularly derived from the interviews we've done in this series, 
are innate, they're born into you, but we all change. I think we can all get softer or harder or wiser. And I want to ask you, um, if I if I don't remember wrongly in one of our long chats, I think that it was probably as a schoolboy where for one reason or another, I don't know if it was to do with your Scottish roots or whatever, life had been a little bit bumpy with maybe older kids or other kids. And I, I was speaking recently, I don't know if you know this, to big Robert Huth, who was at Chelsea and Leicester, I won a title at Leicester, Jeremy. And growing up in Berlin, you'd never judge it now because you you, you wouldn't look badly at Big Robert. Um, he did a tough time and took to judo. And if I don't remember wrongly, at minimum, there was an element of karate, which I, 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 it's what separates us. I'm a karaoke man, which means full hand. And you're a karate man, which is, means open hand, uh, which means we're, we're united by KAR. It, it, it changes you because it isn't just the either the kata side or the combative side. It's a lot about philosophy and ideology. And, and that did, as a young man, that made a difference to you, right? It wasn't the reason that I, that I started doing uh, martial arts. But I think later in later years, I look back and, and I think that may have been an underlying stimulus. When my father was the coach at Aston Villa, and I would be going to school. You know, the older boys would be, oh, the coach of Villa's crap and they're useless. And they're... and then it would be turning around and smack and we'd be kicking off. And I'd, and I'd always get a walloping because I wasn't, you know, they were five and six years older than me, but I wasn't having people say that about my dad. And so that was that was the sort of a background. And then I started to, I met, I met an English guy, I met an English guy who, in Sweden, who had, He'd represented England uh, in an Olympic Games when they'd won a gold medal. And he was a sensei, he was a teacher. So I started working with him and it became more and more and more. And then when I went to Japan, I was really into it and I was trying to sort of then pick up the more, let's say, philosophical or spiritual side of, of martial arts. So it developed more into that. It developed more into... A, a way of living or a, a way of thinking or, or or just putting it into your training, your everyday training. So, yeah, and it did. It did. It affected, it affected my thinking about sports. About I mentioned that the word enlightenment. Where did I get that from? It's from martial arts. You know, the way to enlightenment through the empty hand, karate do. You know, that's, that's, what, it, that's, what, that's what it is. And, and I, I often say to young kids, you know, you can get that enlightenment through football. Dedicate yourself to football. Find out about yourself in defeat. Find out about yourself in success. Dedicate yourself to being the best you can be. You can get that in, in almost any sport, but especially football. When you began as a young man at, at, at martial arts, what did it begin to teach you that was beyond the physical? What were the, what were the philosophical things that will later come in useful to you when you tried to? Because Wenger... Um, and for listeners, they need to understand that we're talking to a man when when you and I were first chatting about um, the possibility of, uh, of of job applications. You said, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." My references will be Sven Gornex and Bobby Robson and Russell Bain. And I was, okay, that'll do for me. Yeah. What did Katy teach you philosophically? Well, when I did kickboxing, it teached me I wasn't very good. But I mean, apart from apart from getting kicked all over the place, no, it, it just. 
it teaches you it teaches you, it teaches you things like dedication it teaches you to concentrate on the here and now it teaches you to to not get carried away with with successes it it teaches you control that's probably the the word i'm i'm looking for is control so i don't know how much did that play a part of when you're facing that that first eight games at Ico and it's not going well and you, you need to stay focused stay determined do a good job don't don't just fade fade away how much control did I gain there maybe you know but I think that's that's definitely one one of the aspects of it that's helped me when you go to Japan and you know it's a terrific you know already that for a couple of reasons I'm, I'm going to focus more on Kobe. But as you said, you won a title. Why do you end up in Japan? What was winning that first title like? And how has the Japanese experience shaped you? Because it's the most, it's possibly for a Western British born man or woman. I think it's one of the most radical culture changes you can be introduced to. I tried to get as good a handle on it as I could. And then I was helped because when I went into the club at San Frechi in Hiroshima, not one of the big uh, mega rich clubs, so we had to look. We couldn't sign Leonardo and Buchwald and people like that that the others could. I was looking in uh, the Czech Republic and I was looking across the water in Korea. So, you know, I picked up players there, but then they weren't big time Charlies. They were team players. So I was careful to make sure that we had the structure was correct and 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 the and the instruction and the instructional part was uh, was important for them and we surprised everybody we won the league we both have the utmost respect for for the japanese people i mean i think you know we saw we saw them recovering from the kobe earthquake we were there we we were with them and and i saw the unbelievable bravery i saw the unbelievable determination and and they made us feel like one of them they really did how, how did you manage uh, as competitors and in a country whereby probably your time was massively devoted to coping with a new culture how did you manage to make decent friends with Arsene Wenger I met Arsene at a coaching course in Copenhagen it would be about 28 years ago I'm still talking to a friend of mine a physical coach called Roger Spry and we're talking about Jens Bangsbo Jens Bangsbo was the, a, a, a Dane who was working for Juventus and he was put on this demonstration of plyometrics and, and we were standing and Roger who was a fitness coach he was saying to me you know, this is interesting this is, and then suddenly a head came in between us and said yes I think this is very interesting and it was our head and then of course then he started talking and he said I'm Arsene Wenger and this and this and we, we, we were on talking for about 30 minutes and he finished up by inviting me to go to Monaco with a couple of my younger players from Halstead and that he would do the same you know, he would bring a couple of his kids across and, and we started like that. So I went to Monaco, wind forward. My next job after Halmstad was in Japan. And Arsene then resigned. Uh, he resigned from Monaco. Uh, and then he was six months out of work. And then Nagoya said to me, we have a friend. We were playing them. We have a friend of yours in the stadium. Oh, really? I says, yeah. He says, yes, he would like to see you after the game. So after the game, I think we lost 1-0. And I'm wandering through all these little corridors and then I open the door 
Wenger's sitting there, isn't he? And he says, hello, Stuart. And I went, oh, thanks for letting me know you come in, sort of thing, you know. So I met him after the game. And we, and then after that, he was there for the time he was. He went to Arsenal and I went to OK. But we got on, we got on really well and we, I didn't speak French, but I, th- I spoke the same language, I think. Because he's talked about, um, he's talked at length about the fact that in his own words, I'm not being mean to him. He says he's a terrible loser, a desperate loser, and he t- he, he he explained that the Japanese culture taught him to try and cope with defeat in a different way. He loves Japan. Arsene loves Japan. I could when people were asking me, "Will Arsene will Arsene leave Arsenal?" I would I would answer them, "If Arsene leaves Arsenal, I think he will go to Japan." You know, and sometimes, sometimes our conversations would be like, "Will your next job be Bayern Munich?" Or you know, and he would ask me, "You know, would you go back to Japan?" And 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 I got the feeling that Arsene was capable of saying, "Top flight football, forget about it. I'll go back. I'll go back to Japan. I'll take a small team. I'll even take young kids. I'll open an academy. You know, and take kids that had no parents from the." Fukushima or from the, the Kobe earthquake and I got I had the feeling that Arsene could very very much do that because I think he was so impressed with Japan and valued his time there so much. You you talked then about about Kobe a couple of times and again it, it was after that that you and I first spoke but subsequently when we went back over it you explained to me just the most extraordinary things that I think you'd been away scouting maybe even signing a footballer in Portugal with maybe the club secretary. And I hadn't known that the Kobe natural disaster had actually started offshore. So uh, I'm sorry to ask for a a retelling of a traumatic event, but it is in human terms, when you travel the world, when you experiment, things can happen that are absolutely extraordinary. What, What then am I... Am I hinting at the fact that you get woken up at Portugal in Portugal by a banging on the door to be told what's happening, right? And and back home, your wife and kids are seeing the disaster coming towards them. The epicenter was a couple of kilometres from where we lived, but the epicenter ran in a let's say a, a westerly direction, so passed in front of us instead of going towards us in a northerly direction. And therefore, we were relatively... And we were on, the, we were on a bit of a, a, a mountain, so as it dissipated, as it reached us, but still walls falling down and stuff like that, and still massively traumatic. But I got woken up, and I looked at CNN, and it was in Portuguese. So all I could see was the earthquake, and I could see Japanese writing. And I said, oh, yeah, is it, is it Tokyo? They said, no, it's Kobe. And I've got the president, or the, not the president, I think it was the CEO in the next room with his family in Kobe and my family in Kobe, and we had to try and get back. And, of course, that was chaos, trying to get back in. So when we got back in, it was the aftershocks and it was the, it was the, the city in ruins and... And it was, it was very, 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 very difficult. I mean, he said to me, they said to me, you can go, take your family and go. We'll give you one year's money. This is not your fight. Uh, and I stayed, obviously, because I'd taken it on. He, they, they were going to pay all of the foreigners that I'd, I'd taken 
four of the staff and I'd sign players and they were going to give everybody one year's money and thank you and it's not your fight. And then a new president came in who had, God bless him, Takasago-san. And he said to me, Baxter-san, give us, give us a team that will show this city that you can't be beaten. He said, if you can do that, I'll back you. So like football just went out the window and it was now, uh, this was something much, much bigger. And in the first, our training pitch had a split down the side. It had a, it was like a wave had passed through it. The showers were all down. So we had, we got demoted into the, the second league and had to win that league to prove that we could host the J League. Well, the first 12 games, it was disastrous. It was disaster. We couldn't train. Everybody was depressed. It was like the aftershocks were going off all the time. I think we won two games in 12. And then at the turnaround, Takasango-san came and said, I'm moving you to a training field I've built for you. And we had a home suddenly. And the players just... And I think we won 13 on the spin. It was unbelievable. It was like you just plugged them in. It was like, whap! And, and at the end of the season, we missed promotion by, I think, a point. And the following year, we, we got promotion. And he said to me, he said, and he didn't speak very good English. And he was drinking and he looked a little bit tipsy. And then he suddenly, he looked at my wife and he said, I will look after your family as long as I've got blood in my body. And he went, and you, and it, and you can buy any player you want. Ha, ha, ha. I said, yeah, don't say that. I said, I might sign Michael Laudrup from Real Madrid. And in the morning, his secretary came to the house with a letter for me saying, I've booked our flights to Madrid. You speak to Michael. And we ended up, we went to Madrid and we signed Michael Laudrup. So that was his gift to the city. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.